Well, this week, obviously, as a nation, we will be observing the holiday of Thanksgiving. The the day of Thanksgiving, of course, harkens back to the founding of our nation and those first settlers who came from the old world to the new world as they paused to give thanks to God for bringing them through that very first brutal and bitter winter. The official celebration of Thanksgiving that we now observe wasn't established until the years of the Civil War when during the midst of that great strife President Lincoln established the day as a national day of Thanksgiving and so partly the day calls us to be thankful specifically for the blessings we enjoy in this nation but of course as God's people it shouldn't take a national holiday to call us to a spirit of gratitude because every breath that we breathe should in many ways be an expression of thanks to God as we acknowledge Him as the source of all that is. And so on this Sunday before Thanksgiving we want to turn our attention to that topic. We're going to look at a familiar but uh, significant passage of Scripture out of the book of Philippians. I would invite you to turn there with me. This is one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of the churches that he established. And in the closing words of the book of Philippians in the fourth chapter, he offers some practical guidance to them on how to address some of the issues that are before them. And he turns specifically to the importance of gratitude. So let me invite you to follow along as we read in Philippians uh, chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I long and love for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, if there's one thing we all have in common, I believe, it is that we all want to be happy. It doesn't matter what our background is or what our current circumstances are or what our worldview may be. We all share that common desire. We may define happiness differently. We may have different methods for achieving it, but we all want it. 
in one particular survey that was conducted by some British researchers, 65% of respondents, well over half, 65% of respondents said that if forced to choose, they would prefer happiness over health. Happiness seems to be a universal human desire. There's only one problem with that desire, and it's called life. Life keeps getting in the way of this existential quest that we all have. Every time a, a dream collapses out from under us, every time some important relationship crumbles, every time the circumstances around us appear to fall apart, every time a goal is missed, Every time our efforts fail to bring about the results we wanted, we realize that yet again happiness has eluded us like the wind we try to grasp with our open hands. Now, it wouldn't be so bad if those kinds of frustrations and hindrances and interferences were only every now and then again. If it was the case that most of the time life unfolded exactly according to our well-laid plans and every so often we had to deal with a struggle or a challenge, we could deal with that. But that's not really the way life seems to go. Rather, the obstacles, the challenges, the hindrances, the heartaches, they seem to be the rule rather than the exception. And that's why if you were to ask most people, they would probably tell you that the happiness they want is still out there in front of them somewhere. They're still reaching for it. They just haven't gotten to it yet. We all have a tendency to think that we will be happy someday once the circumstances are finally right. Once we finally get the right job once we finally get into the right relationship, once we finally achieve the right circumstances, once we finally pay off all our bills and get our kids happily into adulthood, then we'll be happy. But for now, it seems like there's always one more problem to solve, one more hurdle to clear, and we're just not there yet. And what makes it even worse is that it sure looks like all the people around us are much closer to achieving their goal of happiness than we are. From where we stand, it looks like other people have got it all together. Their finances are better. Their job is better. Their house is better. Their relationships are better. If I had what he had, well, of course I'd be happy. What we fail to realize, of course, is that all these people we're comparing ourselves to, these people we've set up as the standard of happiness that we're trying to achieve, they're probably not any happier than we are. They're saying the same thing about us or about the guy beyond them. Here then is the great human dilemma. We all want the same thing, happiness. We all think everybody else has got it. 
And yet, the fact is, most of us are still missing it. And so that's where we find ourselves most days, and that's probably where we find ourselves today. And I want to use that reality and that tension that we all feel as motivation to dive into what the Scriptures have to say to us today. Because both psychologically and spiritually, this dilemma we face, we'll call it the the happiness dilemma, it can lead to one of two possible outcomes. Neither one of which is helpful, neither of which is constructive for human flourishing. And so on this Sunday before Thanksgiving, I want us to pause for a moment and consider what the Scriptures have to say to us about how we can avoid both of these negative outcomes. The first and most obvious negative outcome of this happiness dilemma is anxiety. When life keeps throwing frustrations at us, when we keep finding ourselves running into walls and hurdles, when our drive for happiness and contentment continues to be frustrated, well then there's great potential for us to become anxious about life. The dictionary defines anxiety as apprehensive uneasiness or nervousness over an impending or anticipated ill. That's a mouthful, but consider how in that definition we're looking at two things. We're looking at an ill or or a negative outcome that is either A, impending, that is something we know is going to happen, like a test we've got to take at school or a performance review that we know we have to go through at work. We know it's coming. It's just a matter of dealing with it. Or it could be an ill or a negative outcome that's only anticipated. That is to say, it might not actually happen, but it could. An illness, a job loss, an accident. These things might happen. These things might not happen. But the mere fact that they could happen is enough to provoke anxiety within us. Now, there's a lot of chatter these days about whether we are dealing with a so-called anxiety epidemic in our culture. Every year it seems like there's another study that comes out that reveals that the number of people who are reporting self levels of anxiety is higher than the number of people who reported it the year before. According to one survey, one out of every five people, that's 20% of the population, suffer from anxiety that's high enough that it requires some sort of professional intervention, be it medication or counseling or psychotherapy. And those numbers include both adolescents and adults. And so I would say if you happen to be one of those one out of five, you can at least know you're not alone. We've recently made several college visits with my oldest daughter in anticipation of her graduation from high school. That's enough to cause anxiety for me. But one of the things that we observed is that on every single college campus tour that we took, our tour guide was sure to point out to us with some degree of excitement and confidence how the school that we were visiting offers counseling services to all of their students. In fact, they stressed that more than they stressed housing or food. And that tells us something about the the nature of student life these days. Anxiety is high. People everywhere now seem to be anxious. 
Now, in some ways, this is normal and it is natural. And at the right levels, it can actually be useful. Anxiety, when it is experienced at the right level, is actually a necessary motivator. If your child is anxious about a test they have in school this week, I advise don't rescue them from that because it might encourage them to study. If you're anxious about a performance review you've got to undergo at work, maybe that's enough to motivate you to step up your game, to perform at a higher level, and everybody can win when that happens. In fact, the idea that we can go through life without stress and without anxiety is utter nonsense. It's what motivates us. The problem is that before long we've crossed over from what we might call situational anxiety. That is, anxiety around a specific situation that will eventually come and then go and we move on with life. We move over from that into what we might call generalized anxiety. And this is anxiety that isn't attached to one specific thing, but instead is more of a foreboding sense that just sort of pervades every aspect of our lives. And before long, we begin to live with this constant nagging sense that something is wrong or our fear that something bad is going to happen. And over time, as that grows within us, we are drained of our ability to live with joy and purpose and contentment in life. So when we're confronted with the constant reality that the happiness that we want is not immediately available to us, one possible outcome is we find the anxiety levels within us growing and we become anxious people. But there's another possible outcome that might result from this what we call happiness dilemma. When we are continually frustrated in our striving for happiness, it could also cause us instead to become apathetic. The social scientists will tell us that anxiety and apathy are closely related, but I, I think there's enough difference between them that we can look at them separately. The dictionary defines apathy as, quote, a lack of feeling, interest, or emotion. To become apathetic is to be passive, and to withdraw from life. To be apathetic is to say, in effect, you know what, I just don't care anymore. I'm tired of trying. I keep running into problems. I can't reach my goal, so forget about it. This is the spouse who no longer cares that the marriage is heading for disaster. This is the student who no longer believes that graduation is a real possibility and so she quits trying. This is the unemployed person who has given up on her hope that there is actually meaningful work out there to be found, so why should he even bother anymore? To become apathetic is to believe that there's no point in putting forth any more effort because experience has shown me that it's not going to result in anything, so you simply give up and you withdraw from life. You become apathetic. Now here's the connection between anxiety and apathy. 
If anxiety means to be overly wrapped up and overly concerned with an unknown future, apathy means to be completely unengaged with the future anymore. If anxiety means investing too much energy into what might happen, apathy means not investing enough energy into what can happen. If anxiety means to live with fear, apathy means to not care. And if anxiety robs us of our joy, apathy robs us of our agency. What does this mean? We've used this word before. Agency refers to our sense, our belief that we actually can act upon the world around us, that God created us to be more than just passive creatures, that rather we have the power of intentionality, that we can act upon the world, that we can exert influence upon our circumstances. Agency means believing that we actually can do something. And yet apathy robs us of that. So whichever way we turn, anxiety or apathy, either way, we are not living the life we were created to live. You see, Scripture reveals that we were created to live lives of purpose and intentionality. Specifically, we are told we were created to enjoy fellowship with God and with each other. We have touched upon this multiple times in recent weeks when we looked at the I am statements of Jesus. Going back to Genesis 1 over and over again, we were told that we were created to be in partnership with God and with each other. And somebody once asked Jesus what the most important commandments were out of all the commandments that God gave. And his answer to that was a simple, direct, two-part response. He said, we are to love God and we are to love our neighbor. Now, to love, that implies both enjoyment and it implies intentionality. Love doesn't happen by accident It happens because we apply ourselves with purpose to the relationships in our lives. But we cannot do that if we are living with anxiety or with apathy. Which brings us to the question of the day. How do we avoid these negative outcomes? What is the antidote to the anxiety or the apathy that always seems to be nipping at our heels. I believe Paul's letter to the church in Philippi points us directly to the answer this morning. Now, we need to say up front that when Paul wrote this letter, he was not engaging in an exercise of pop psychology or self-help motivation. This is a letter written to a group of Christians in which Paul is trying to lay out for them a picture of what it means to live as followers of a crucified and risen Savior. In other words, Paul is writing to them about how to live out the gospel and how to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, isn't it amazing how the gospel always seems to speak right to the heart of our human struggle. 
Because you see, the gospel begins by naming the fact that we are broken and sinful people. The gospel begins with the fact that all is not well with us. In fact, there is something deeply, deeply wrong with us. And by naming that brokenness, it then offers us the power to respond to that through the grace of Jesus Christ. By redeeming us from sin, by paying the price for our sin, by restoring our broken relationship with God the Father, Jesus has opened the door for us to live the full human experience we were designed to live. He has created a pathway for us to be restored to what God originally intended when He called us into being. And so here we have the Apostle Paul writing 2,000 years ago, speaking right into the heart of the great dilemma that still plagues us today. Now, a little background, I think, will help uh, put these words into context. The church in Philippi was a church that Paul had founded on one of his missionary journeys. If you read through the book of Acts, you read about three different trips that Paul took. And in Acts chapter 16, we read about the time that Paul spent in Philippi on his second missionary journey. And even though Paul had since moved on, he remained in contact with the church in Philippi. Now, scholars will tell us that of all the churches that Paul helped to found, the church in Philippi was most likely his favorite. It was the one with whom he seemed to have the warmest uh, connections and, and the most grateful attitude And that's why when you read the book of Philippi, you get these very warm and pastoral words that Paul has to say, where he's expressing tremendous gratitude to them. But Paul is concerned, nevertheless, for his friends in Philippi because he's learned about some struggles they are having. They're a good church, but they are not a perfect church. Far from it. For one thing... There appears to be some internal conflict within the church. We get a little glimpse of that in the first verse that we read this morning when Paul pleads with two women, one named Euodia and one named Syntyche, to be reconciled to each other. We do not know what the source of the conflict was, but clearly it was enough that it was creating division within the church or else Paul wouldn't have addressed it. We also know by reading through the letter that the church was being threatened by some false teachers, probably people who had come in after Paul had left and were beginning to teach things that were at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, we don't know the specific content of their teaching, but we know that it was significant enough that Paul felt it necessary to write to them to warn them about the dangers of these falsehoods and to keep them on the right path. Then you can add to this the fact that the young church in Philippi, like all of the young churches that Paul had established, lived and worshipped in a pretty hostile environment. They were doing ministry at a time and in a place that frankly was not very interested in what they had to say. And so there were threats being hurled at them from the outside. Division internally false teachings externally, threats from every angle, put it all together, and there were reasons to be concerned. 
Now, on the one hand, there was the danger that these early believers might just give up and become apathetic. If you're constantly being confronted with these struggles and these trials, what's the point? Why even try? On the other hand, they could become consumed by anxiety and spend all of their energy worrying about how all of this would turn out. Paul didn't want either outcome. He didn't want them to become apathetic because they had work to do, they had a mission to fulfill, they had a calling to live into, and that calling was going to require intentionality and effort and thoughtfulness. Nor did he want them to be anxious because he knew that the anxiety would draw out of them the joy that would be needed to fulfill the work they had been given to do. And so in verse 6, he speaks right to the heart of their problem. He says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now this morning I want us to focus on that one simple word, the word thanksgiving. And not simply because of what we will observe this Thursday. I believe that thanksgiving, gratitude, is one of the most powerful antidotes we have against the threats of anxiety and apathy. Now, before we go any further, let me be very clear that I do not intend this morning to discount the role or the need for professional interventions where they are called for. There are plenty among us who find that to be a useful way of responding to the pressures of life, and we ought to avail ourselves of of every available tool, whether it's medication or therapy or whatever else helps us press through. But I also believe that one of the simplest and most effective tools at our disposal for dealing with these threats is learning how to develop a spirit of gratitude. And here's why I say that. Genuine gratitude requires two things. First, and these are going to seem so simple, they they almost aren't worth saying, but we need to say them because we need to be intentional about them. First, gratitude requires an intentional acknowledgement of the blessings and benefits that have come our way. Seems obvious enough. It's very hard to be grateful for things that you haven't bothered to notice. If you have given a gift to me and I don't know about it, I will never be grateful for it. But if I become aware of it, then I may very well be forced to acknowledge it and to say thank you. And so gratitude begins by first simply taking note of the blessings and the benefits that we have. And it could begin with some of the simplest blessings like I had a roof over my head last night. I had food on my table this morning. 
I have friends who cared for me yesterday. I had a church to attend tomorrow. Some of the simplest daily blessings that make our day-to-day life possible. By simply pausing long enough to take notice of them, we have already taken a first powerful step towards responding to the anxieties and the apathies of life. And here's why. Taking notice of things requires active engagement with life. Remember what we said about apathy. Apathy means withdrawing from life. Apathy means becoming passive. An apathetic person will never bother to notice the simple blessings that make his or her life possible. So the first step of giving thanks will naturally and automatically pull us out of our apathetic selves because it will force us to engage with life. Gratitude and mental laziness cannot coexist. So if you find yourself today in a place of apathy, If you've come to that place in life where you're tending to just sort of give up and say, it's not worth the effort anymore. Maybe the first step forward is to begin by taking account of the good things, even the simple good things that constitute your life. And try to be as specific as you can with it. If you have become apathetic about your marriage, stop for a moment and write down some of the things about your spouse for which you are truly grateful. Force yourself to take notice of the good things he or she does, even if they are small things. If you're apathetic about your job, Take note of the good things about your employment. Maybe a co-worker who is kind to you. Or a project you're getting to work on that is actually engaging for you. If you are apathetic about church, force yourself to take notice of some of the good things that church provides for you. With any of these things... It is natural to notice the stuff that you don't like, that doesn't require any effort. But if you focus on the good things, the blessings and the benefits, you will already begin to notice a change in your heart. And I will make this prediction. The more you can begin to focus on the good things, the more you will find yourself wanting to lean into life just a little bit more. Because with each blessing that you identify, you will have one more reason to abandon your apathetic spirit and will become step by step more engaged with life. Gratitude begins by simply acknowledging the blessings and the benefits that make our lives possible. But that leads to the second and frankly even more important aspect of gratitude. Genuine gratitude requires an acknowledgement that the blessings that we enjoy 
have come to us from a source that is beyond us. If I am convinced that all of the good things in my life are a direct result of my efforts and my achievements, I am not likely to be grateful for them. In fact, the opposite will happen. Instead of a spirit of gratitude, I will develop a spirit of conceit and arrogance. But if I can realize the blessings and benefits of my life are gifts that have come to me from somewhere beyond me, well, then my perception of the world begins to change just a little bit because I can begin to see how in even some very simple ways I am provided for, I am cared for. I can begin to recognize that in spite of all the struggles and heartaches of life, there are provisions, there is goodness, there are blessings to be had. On this day when we celebrate the dedication of children and their parents, our children can teach us something important here. Why does a child cry out in the middle of the night? They need something. And when a parent responds to that cry in love, the child learns to understand from an early age that the world around them is actually responsive to their needs. That when they are in struggle and in difficulty, there are caring faces and voices in life that will respond to them. Well, gratitude teaches us the same thing as adults. By learning to understand that even in the midst of the struggles of life and the heartaches and the difficulties that life invariably throws at us, there is a power of goodness that is at work in the world around us. And when we can begin to develop that understanding, little by little our anxieties begin to fade into the background Remember what we said anxiety is about. It consists primarily of worrying about the future. It is this nagging sense that something bad is going to happen. Well, gratitude doesn't make my problems go away. But it does enable my ability to see that there is a power at work in the world that is working to bring about good in life, even in my life. Gratitude enables me to see past my present struggles and to reimagine the future because if I am provided for now, well, then there is reason to believe I will be provided for then. And so by acknowledging that the blessings and benefits that are in my life come from beyond me, I begin to develop a greater sense of confidence about the future. Of course, the, the Bible goes the full step to name that power which is at work for our good. That power is not luck or fate or chance. That power is the living God. He is the one who called the universe into being from out of nothing. 
He is the one who made covenant with his people Israel. He is the one who sent Jesus Christ into the world and all the way to the cross to make atonement for the sins of me and you and the entire world. And he is the one who called that same Jesus out of the grave. And at every step along the way, he has revealed both his goodness and his power. His power for life and his goodness to apply that power to my life and to yours. That power and that goodness was available to the Philippian Christians so that even in the face of obstacles and challenges, they could still press forward in ministry with a spirit of purpose and intentionality, confident that the God who had called them would sustain them. And that power and that goodness is still available to us today Without apathy and without anxiety, we can engage our world with joy and with purpose, knowing that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is still with us. And if we find ourselves sometimes struggling to believe that, maybe the first thing we should do is just stop and give thanks. Stop long enough to notice the blessings and the benefits that make my life possible. And then name and praise the one who has given them to me. Let's pray together. Father God, we cannot begin to thank you enough for all of the goodness that you bestow upon us. In these days ahead, cause us to pause just long enough to acknowledge the simple goodness that sustains life. We are so quick to complain and agonize over all that is not well. And oh God, there is so much that is not well. But even in the face of that, cause us to look to the goodness that you provide and to acknowledge you as their source so that we can engage our world with purpose and live without fear. Cause us to be grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how will this unfold for you this week as we pause as a nation to give thanks? What will that consist of in your life? How will you be intentional about naming the blessings that make your life possible? That's the challenge we need to take with us as we go. Otherwise, we just go through the motions and nothing changes. But if we will pause to give thanks, we will find our lives begin to change. Now, the first step that needs to happen is to acknowledge the Lord as the source of all of that. And so if you're here this morning and are not in relationship with him through Jesus Christ, then as we sing here in a moment, I would invite you to come forward as you begin a journey of faith. If you need a church home to connect with other people who are seeking to live in gratitude to each other and to God, we would invite you. But the call is to all of us 
to name and give thanks for the blessings of God. Let's stand and do that as we worship him.